Well, would you please turn into your Bibles in 1 Samuel chapter 16 in the Old Testament. Uh, for the, those of you new to the faith, it's near the front of your Bible. Uh, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, Ruth, then 1 Samuel. The title of this morning's message is From the Pasture to the Palace. From the Pasture to the Palace. Or maybe a subtitle would be A Nobody Becomes a Somebody. And when we're thinking about the elections that we have and that we are going to choose uh, the new president of the United States of America and we take a role in that, um, it's pretty humbling that we get to do that. But also what we're going to look in our story here this morning is how Israel was going to be choosing a new king as well. And so as we look to this story, it was a time in Israel's history when they wanted a new king. The former king was good, he was kind, he was compassionate, he was fair, he was just, he was righteous, he was intelligent, he was powerful, he was everything that a country could ask for in a leader, and he was God. God was the king over Israel. It was a theocracy where God ruled and reigned in the people of Israel. But they saw the other countries, and they said, you know, we want a king so we can have one of our own, a human king. Big mistake. But that's what they wanted. And sometimes God gives us what we ask for, and he gave them an earthly king, and his name was Saul. And he did well for a while, but like all earthly kings and presidents, he was flawed. He was a sinner, and he failed. So in our text this morning, Saul was the current king. He was the people's choice. But God was going to choose a new king. He would be the Lord's choice. Saul had been in three serious acts of disobedience by this time in our story. The first being in chapter 13 when he made a terrible decision in performing an unlawful sacrifice. He took an offering, a burnt offering, and sacrificed it to the Lord. That was the priest's doing. That was Samuel's to be doing. And Saul went ahead of God and did it his way. In chapter 14, he made a, a rash vow. When the Israelites were fight, fighting against the Philistines, and, and as they were battling, Saul says, no man, no warrior, no soldier is going to eat anything until we utterly defeat the Philistines. Not until evening. Well, his son Jonathan wasn't there, and, and he's going into battle, and he's doing well against the Philistines, and he sees some honey on the ground. He takes it, he eats it, and he becomes revitalized, energized. And then evening comes, Saul, Jonathan's dad, finds out that he partook of food, and so he says, okay, let's kill him. That doesn't make a lot of sense, and the, the people didn't do that. The soldiers didn't do that. Very rash vow. Then in chapter 15, Saul openly disobeys God by not utterly destroying the evil Amalekites to rid the land of evil and kept their king, King Agag, alive. After this situation, Samuel then returned to his home in Ramah, and Saul uh, returned to his home in Gibeah. And that's where we find our story this morning. I'd like to look at two aspects of God's grace this morning. So if you're taking notes, which I hope you are, the first point will be God's choosing. 
God's choosing, and then we'll look at God's preparing. So our first point this morning is God's choosing. Let's read verses 1 through 5. And the Lord said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul, since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. And Samuel said, How can I go? If Saul hears it, he will kill me. The Lord said, Take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord, and invite Jesse to the sacrifice and I will show you what you shall do. And you shall anoint for me him whom I declare to you. Samuel did what the Lord had commanded, and he came to Bethlehem. The elders of the city came to meet him, trembling, and said, Do you come in peace? And Samuel said, Peaceably, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves, and come with me to the sacrifice. And he consecrated Jesse and his sons, and invited them to the sacrifice. Would you please pray with me? Father, as we open up your word, we know that it is truth. We know that it's alive and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. It's able to discern between the thoughts and the intents of our hearts. We pray by the power of your Holy Spirit, you would teach us. We are desperately dependent upon you here this morning. So we pray that you would bless your words to our hearts, that we would be men and women, men, men and women who are, are hard after your heart, God, that we would desire the things that you desire, to love the things that you love and hate the things that you hate, and that it would be for your glory and our good, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So at first glance... This might look as a story of Samuel and Saul. Then later on in our story, it may look like Samuel and David. But anytime that we open up the Word of God and we read it, we've got to look at God as the focal point. I love the fact that it says, Reliance Church, simply Jesus. Because that's where we look to, the author and finisher of our faith. So every time we open up God's word, we're asking God to reveal Jesus to us and look for him in this. Now, Samuel, going into any city would have been a big deal. He was the priest and prophet of Israel. It would be like when the pope goes into a new city, goes into a city, and there's a lot of preparation ahead of time. They would uh, prepare the city. They would check all the security. They would do the routes he's going to do. It would be a big deal. When an Old Testament prophet was coming to your city, you would wonder, is this for good news or is this for bad news? Is he coming to bless us or is he coming to curse us? Has he heard about some things that's going on here? What are you doing here, Samuel? But ironically, Samuel himself was fearful of going to Bethlehem because of Saul. Because he'd have to go through Gibeah to get to Bethlehem and he knew Saul was there. And he was thinking, if Saul hears that I'm going to Bethlehem to anoint a new king, he is not going to be happy. He's going to come after me. And Samuel was fearful. And as we read this first section, it looks almost like an ethical dilemma here. Was God telling Samuel to lie? Was God telling Samuel to tell a half-truth? Evangelical Old Testament scholar Walter Kaiser says this, there is a world of difference between telling a lie and concealing information that others have forfeited a right to know because of their hostile attitude towards God and his moral standards. And that describes Saul. Even Jesus says that we're to be as wise as serpents and gentle as doves. 
So under the heading of our first point, God's choosing, we're going to look at several facets of this choosing. The first being the hope in God's choosing. The hope in God's choosing. In this text, we see the most well-respected spiritual leader in the land mourning and grieving over Saul. Why? Because as a spiritual leader, Samuel saw the devastating effects of sin. Saw disobeyed God, and now he was going to reap the consequence of his sin, and his, the kingdom was going to be ripped from his hand and given to someone else. And this grieved Samuel. As pastors, when we meet with people, and, and we love meeting with the congregation, but there's times when, when they're caught in sin, we understand that, we grieve over those things. The question we ask ourselves this morning, do we grieve over sin? Do we grieve over our own sin? Do we, we grieve over the sins of others? Hey, did you hear about so-and-so? Well, I hope you're telling me that so we can join together just the two of us in prayer because there's too many people who don't grieve over sin. Instead, they gossip over sin. Sin grieves God, and it should grieve us as well. But I like the interesting choice that, uh, of words that God uses to tell Samuel of his intentions. He says, I have provided myself a king. The people wanted the king, we gave him Saul. I'm going to provide the next king. Saul was the people's choice for the king, and we saw what a disaster that was. Saul's choice was not God's perfect will. But God gave the people of Israel their request, and God gave Israel the king they wanted, a human king. But God's choice, God's will, is always better than our choice. Saul chose, chose his own will over God's, and that's never a good choice. The Bible speaks of the will of God in several different terms. And I'd like to, to give you some of those here this morning. First, there is the perfect will of God. We may have heard that term before. It says, I just want to be in the center of God's perfect will. I want to be right where God wants me to be. Romans 12, 2 says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds that you might know what the, the good and acceptable and perfect will of God is. We can know the perfect will of God because God's word is clear in some things. For example, in 1 Thessalonians 4, 3, it says, for this is the will of God, your sanctification, you living to be more and more like Jesus. This is God's will expressed in the form of principles or precepts given to man in his word. His written word is the expression of his will. That's why it's so important as, as New Testament believers that we read God's word daily, that we, we meditate upon it. You don't have to pray about certain things. Certain things are very clear for this is the will of God for you. You don't have to pray about living with your boyfriend or living with your girlfriend. It's pretty obvious from God's word that's not the way that God wants it to be lived. You don't have to pray about, should I lie to my boss today and then tell him I'm going skiing instead of, you know, sick in bed? Of course not. Secondly, there is the decreed will of God, the decreed will of God. This is God's eternal foreordained plan and purpose. It doesn't change. It's never thwarted. It includes our salvation and our calling of his covenant purposes and his promises. Those are all part of his decree. Also, there's God's preferential will or desirative will. This has to know with knowing what gives God pleasure and what gives him displeasure. Because as believers, we want to always please the Lord. We don't always do it. I understand that. But, but that's the way that God desires his preferential will. Because God takes pleasure 
in the salvation of sinners, and he does not take pleasure in pouring out his eternal wrath on anyone. When we come to things that are not clearly described in Scripture, someone might call them gray areas, what do we do? We have to think, is this thing that I'm about to do, is this decision I'm about to make, is this going to please the Lord? There's also something we might call God's permissive will. God's permissive will. This is God's will that allows us to do the things that we want to do, kind of like it was with the children of Israel. It was God's permissive will for them to bring a king, an earthly king. Even though it's not his plan for our lives, we can go ahead of God. We can even blatantly disobey him, and sometimes God allows it. God allows man to reject the gospel, to willfully disobey his laws, to persecute the righteous, and so on. But in all this, God is always still in control. And lastly, there's also something that's called God's directive will. God's directive will is where he's directing our paths. There's sometimes that we go into situations unbeknownst to ourselves. We wake up in the morning, we do our devotion, we pray, and we head out the door and look at our calendar and see the appointments that we have, and then something happens. We get a flat tire, we have to pull over the side of the road, we have to call AAA, the tow truck driver comes, and we start talking to him or her, and, and all of a sudden we're preaching the gospel for them. Wasn't on our calendar, wasn't in, our, in the plan book for the day, but God knew. The Bible says the steps of the righteous are ordered by God. So sometimes they just lead us to places where we weren't expecting. That's okay. It's like, God, I don't understand this. I don't really even like this necessarily, but there must be a reason why I'm here now. What is it that you want me to do? And that needs to be our attitude. Well, getting back to our story, I, I find it interesting, again, that Samuel is fearful of his life when just a few you know, verses before that, in chapter 15, he is taking the king who Saul was supposed to kill, and he, he takes King Agag, Agag, and it says, the Bible says that he cuts him into pieces. This is like a scene from The Walking Dead. I mean, he's like hacking him into pieces, like, man. And so he's not fearful then, and all of a sudden he's fearful of Saul. It's the same thing when Elijah goes to Mount Carmel to take on the 400 prophets of Baal. And the 400 prophets of Baal are there, and they're, they're trying to call down fire on the sacrifice, and nothing was happening. Elijah's kind of ridiculing them. Then it's Elijah's turn. And Elijah's God brings fire down upon the sacrifice. It consumes the sacrifice, the water, the 400 prophets of Baal, everything. What a victory. Then Jezebel hears about it, and she's upset, and she's going after Elijah. And Elijah's just fearful of his life. He goes running again. Sometimes in the great victories of our walk, in the great victories of our faith, some minor issue comes up that derails us and distracts us. When I say minor, because it's all minor to God. And it distracts us and it derails us when we just have to simply keep the same faith that we had through the victory, through the challenges. As Samuel comes to Bethlehem, now the people are fearful. And they say, Samuel, why are you coming here? Is everything good? We saw what you did to King Agag. We don't want anything happening to us. Maybe they knew about some sin in their lives. I don't know. But he told those all in attendance to purify themselves for the sacrifice. And he then personally assists Jesse and his family. The, the preparation, the consecration, getting ready for that next thing. It's kind of like when you young ladies, you have your best friend. And her boyfriend is going to propose to her. And he's got you in on the secret. And so he says, I want you to, to do all these things, get them ready. So you take your girlfriend to get a, a manicure, right? 
because she's going to get a ring put on that finger and she's going to post it on Instagram, right? And so she better have the, the crystal gel and the jamberries. She better have that thing looking nice, right? Because she's going to be posting, people are going to be looking. Preparation. In the same way, Samuel's telling prepare yourself. In the same way, we prepare ourselves for, for worship service. I hope you don't prepare yourselves for the 945 service at 944. I hope that you prepare yourself the night before. We're going to church tomorrow. We're going to get up. We're going to go. We're going to prepare our offering. We're going to get our Bible. Everything's going to be ready to go. Consecrating ourselves. This was a big day for a fortunate young man, the son of Jesse, and Samuel makes sure that they are ready. So that was the, the hope in the choosing. The next thing we see is the wisdom of God's choosing. Sometimes God's choice, his choices just don't seem as wise as we would have liked them to be. But we see in the end they always are. Let's continue our reading in verse 6. When they came, Samuel looked on Eliab and thought, surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, don't look on his appearance or on the height of his stature because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as a man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. One of the characteristic traits of God is that he's omniscient. He is all-knowing. He knows everything. He knows beginning from the end, the first and last, alpha and omega. He knows everything. The problem with choosing Saul as the people's king is that they can only look at the outward. Oh, look at him. He's got to be a king. He's strong. He's a head and shoulders above everybody else. He is the king. Tall, strong, capable. I wonder if this is where the saying, don't judge a book by its cover comes from. Because Samuel was judging Eliab by his cover. He's got to be the next king. He sees this is like a no-brainer guy. I mean, this is, this is obvious. But Eliab, even though he makes sense, outwardly, he was not God's choice. In chapter 4 of 1 Samuel, the children of Israel made a, a huge mistake in bringing the Ark of the Covenant. It was, that, it was that holy article that God gave to them, the Ark of the Covenant, and they brought it into battle, kind of as a good luck charm, and the Philistines took it. Huge mistake. In chapter 8, we see another poor choice in that the people wanted a king other than God. And now here, surely Samuel is going to make a right choice. But no, he wants to choose Eliab. But God was thinking something far different. Four words saves Israel from complete failure. I have rejected him. God rejected him. And sometimes when we pray... We pray, as James says, we pray amiss. We don't pray according to, to God's will. After every prayer, we should pray according to your will. Jesus prayed in the garden, but nevertheless, not my will, but the Father's will be done. In the same way, that could be our prayer. Because one thing we, we have to know as believers is that God loves us so much. He loves us so much. The thoughts that I think towards you, says the Lord, are thoughts of good and not of evil to bring you a future and a hope. God loves us so much. I mean, he sent his only son for us. Please know that every prayer that you pray, every prayer that I pray is answered by God. Now, it's not always answered yes by God, but every prayer is answered by God. Sometimes the answer is yes. We like that. But sometimes the answer is no. Sometimes we don't like that as much. 
Sometimes the answer is even wait. Yes, I'm going to answer, but not yet. As it says in Ecclesiastes, that God makes all things beautiful in its time. And so if you're waiting upon the Lord for an answer of prayer here this morning, be encouraged. God hears you. He really does. And, and we know that God is good. He, he's both sovereign, he's in control of everything, and he's good. He has a plan for our lives. And for you singles especially, you know, maybe you're thinking, I want, I want God to bring me a spouse. I'm, I'm praying for that spouse. How many of you are single here this morning? Raise your hands. Okay, now look around the room. Okay, all those single people, look around the room. All right, good, good. I mean, where better to play, find a spouse than a church? So then you're praying for that perfect person. You think that's him or that's her. God, I know it. I know it. Look how good looking they are. Look how much money they have. God, that's got to be the right person. God says, no, I've got something better for you. Yeah, but they're probably ugly, God. They're probably poor. The fact is God has a great plan for us. Ephesians 3.20 says this. God gives us exceedingly, abundantly, above all that we can ask or think. Another facet of God's choosing is the surprise in God's choosing. The surprise. Verse 8. Then Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel. And God said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. Then Jesse made Shema pass by and God again said, the Lord hasn't chosen this one. And Jesse made all of his sons pass before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, the Lord has not chosen any of these. Then Samuel said, are all your sons here? And Jesse said, well, there's a young guy in the back. Behold, he's keeping the sheep. Samuel said to Jesse, send him in and get him in here. We are not going to sit down until he comes. And they sent him and brought him in. Now David was ready. He had his beautiful eyes and he was handsome. And the Lord said, arise, anoint him, for this is he. All of Jesse's sons come by. Samuel, nope, nope. Continuing on, Samuel must be thinking, this is getting pretty thin here. This has got to be the one that's the last one. God says, nope. So Samuel must be thinking, what? Did I not hear from the Lord? Let's have him pass by again. No, he just says, God says, I've not chosen any of those. Samuel's like, okay, Jesse, do you have any more sons? Well, this one guy in the back. Did you not understand the whole bring all of your sons here? Yeah, well, he's just, he's just, he's, he's just a little guy, you know? He's just a young guy, and it's like, bring him in. In fact, Samuel said, we're not even going to eat until he's brought here. So for you ladies, here's a tip. If you want your man to do something, you say, you know, we're not going to do this until, you know, you go do this thing. We're not going to eat until you do this. Know that. That's how you get to us, man. It's like, we're not doing this until, you know, you finish it up. So that's just a little non, you know, a tip for the side. No extra cost. So Samuel instructs them, and he comes in, and David comes in, and God says, that's him. That's the one. That's the one I want you to anoint. We don't read that, that David was purified or consecrated. We just read that God said he is the one. Because God sometimes does things that are unexpected, out of the norm. This was certainly a surprise to Samuel. It had to be a surprise to Jesse. And I bet his brothers weren't too happy. And then David himself was probably unexpected to him. Because you see, God uses the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. Look at someone like the great evangelist D.L. Moody, an uneducated, uncultured man, no educational advantages. He establishes the Moody Press, the Moody Bible Institute, Moody radio stations. He leads to Christ countless numbers of people, and the list goes on. 
Look at the four women in the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Tamar, Ruth, Bathsheba, and Rahab. One acted as a prostitute. Another was a prostitute. Another was a heathen from a Gentile country. And one was an adulterer. All in the line of the Messiah. Living proof that God can and will use anyone regardless of our past actions, our past class, or our occupation. Look at the 12 disciples. We see a bunch of fishermen. We see an IRS agent, a fanatical extremist, a skeptic. God chooses the humble, the lowly, the meek, and the weak. So that's, so there'll never be a question of about the source of power when those lives, when our lives change the world. It's not about the person. It's about the truth of God and the power of God in that person. It wasn't about David. It was about the God in David. So what was the result of God's choosing in verse 13? Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed David in the midst of his brothers, and the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward, and Samuel rose up and went back home to Ramah. Imagine what a sight that must have been. His brothers all standing there. I wonder if it's Eliab. I wonder if it's Shammah. I wonder if it's Abinadab. None of those. And David comes in and Samuel anoints him with oil. His brothers must have been just beside themselves. But the oil's rushing down David's hair, not on his beard because he didn't probably have one. He's so young and on his face and on his garments. It was just engulfing him in that And know this, that anointing oil in the scripture is representation of the Holy Spirit. And so the Holy Spirit rushes upon David. And as pastors, we often have the privilege of praying with the congregation uh, for healing. And we do that in accordance to James 5.14 that says, Is any among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church. And they pray over them, anointing them with oil in the name of the Lord. So it's, it's biblical. So when you're sick and you want uh, us as pastors and elders to anoint you with oil, it's, it's very biblical. I remember many years ago, we were, uh, a, another pastor and myself went to a hospital visit and we're visiting with a, a gentleman from our church and, and we're at his, his foot of his bed and he's, he's sitting there, lying there and, and we have oil with us and we're gonna anoint him with oil. So I take the lid off and, and hand it to the other pastor and then he takes the lid off, there was no lid, and it's just pouring all out on this guy's feet. And, and oil usually is just a little bit. It's very fragrant. It was like when Mary went to Jesus and got her, her expensive, you know, costly perfume and, and anointed Jesus' feet. And the whole room smelled of fragrance. In the same way, this whole room smelled of fragrance. And it was like, this ain't good. You know, the nurse is going to come in and think, what is going on here? And just pouring all over this guy's feet. And so we, we prayed for him and then we quietly left. And it was, I mean, it was, it was strong. And then several months later, me and the same pastor was invited with our wives over to one of the ladies at our church. Dear, sweet saint, elderly saint, has now gone home to be with the Lord. We actually named our prayer chapel chapel after her at church. And she just loved the Lord. She was very elegant, had a very nice home. She invited us for dinner, made a beautiful dinner on China. And she was wearing a very beautiful blouse. But she asked this other pastor if he would uh, pray for her, anoint her with oil. I said, sure. So he took off, same guy, took off the lid and dabbed it, and, you know, dabbed it on her forehead, but it was around her. And then he went to pray for her, and the oil just dripping all down her blouse. And she was so gracious. She was like, 
Oh, that's okay. I, God's healing will come. That, that's so perfect. So the moral of that story is don't ever let Pastor Brad pray for you. Because it probably won't turn out very well. But for David, it wasn't just a dab of oil on his forehead. It was, he was engulfed with the oil. But David, he could have been forgotten. He was definitely forgotten by his dad. He was disregarded by his earthly father. Yeah, the one kid in the bag, yeah, well, bring him in. But yet God didn't forget him. God never forgets us. God remembered him and exalted him. So much so that he is in the lineage of the Messiah. It's going to run through David and his ancestry. Have you ever felt overlooked? Have you ever felt like you didn't get your, your, your just reward? Whether it was in your family or maybe it was at your work, you didn't get the promotion that you deserved. Maybe even at church. Maybe someone else got a promotion at church. Maybe someone was asked to do something you wanted to do and you were, you were passed over from that. But you know what? God sees it all. God looks upon our hearts. And, and, and why are we doing what we do? Hopefully uh, we're doing everything as under the Lord, not under any man or person. We're looking to, to God, the, the author and finisher of our faith. Just be faithful. God sees it all. He sees our heart. He knows our motives. God doesn't care so much about our outward appearances. He looks right at our heart, at the inner part of our being, our character, the person, the whole person of who we are. And the result of God's choosing was that the Holy Spirit came upon David and uses the term, it rushed upon David. The oil was visible representation of that. In the same way, the Holy Spirit is a, is a visible representation of us as we serve the Lord. When we go out into our communities, when we go out into our workplace, when we go to our Thanksgiving dinner and our non-believing family members are there, they're looking at us because the Holy Spirit indwells us. And you know, when the Holy Spirit indwells us, it makes us look different too. You ever have someone come up to you and you've not met them, you're just maybe working with them or just talking to them and they say, something about you is different you're a Christian, aren't you? Well, that, that's a great thing when, they, when you didn't even tell them you were a Christian, but they knew it by your actions. And conversely, I hope this never happens. Hmm, you're a Christian? I would have never guessed that. You know, hopefully that's not what they're saying about us. So that's God's choosing. God's choosing. Our second and last point is God's preparation. And I'd like to just finish reading the whole chapter, verses 14 through 23. Now the Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul, and a harmful spirit from the Lord tormented him. And Saul's servant said to him, Behold now, a harmful spirit from God is tormenting you. Let our Lord now command your servants who are before you to seek out a man who is skillful in playing the lyre, and when the harmful spirit from God is upon you, he will play it, and you will be well. So Saul said to his servants, Provide for me a man who can play well and bring him to me. One of the young men answered, Behold, I've seen a son of Jesse, the Bethlehemite, who is skillful in playing a man of valor, a man of war, prudent in speech, and a man of good presence, and the Lord is with him. Therefore Saul sent messengers to Jesse and said, Send me David your son, who is with the sheep. And Jesse took a donkey laden with bread and a skin of wine and a young goat and sent them by David his son to Saul. And David came to Saul and entered his service, and Saul loved him greatly, and he became his armor-bearer. And Saul sent to Jesse, saying, Let David remain in my service, for he has found favor in my sight. And whenever the harmful spirit from God was upon Saul, David took the lyre and played it with his hand. So Saul was refreshed and was well, and the harmful spirit departed from him. 
One of the saddest commentaries in all the Old Testament, the spirit of the Lord departed Saul. The Holy Spirit is the third person of the Godhead, of the triune God. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. We need to understand the, in the presence or the absence of the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament doesn't talk about a person's salvation, but only in his power that worked through those folks for God's selective service. It's why, God, it's why David prayed in the Psalms, take not thy Holy Spirit from me. We don't have to pray that prayer today as New Testament believers. We don't have to pray, God, don't take your Holy Spirit from me. When we receive Christ alone for our salvation, when we trust Jesus for the forgiveness of our sins, the Holy Spirit immediately come and resides within us and he never departs us. In fact, the Bible says that he's our guarantee of our inheritance. And so if God guarantees something, you can believe that it's gonna come to pass. And so we see this in the life of David and we see it in the life of us as well. But even though God will never take his Holy Spirit from us. We can grieve the Spirit of God. We can quench the Spirit of God. We can insult the Spirit of God. How do we do that? Well, by unconfessed sin, by an unrepented heart, by disobeying the Lord and what he wants us to do. And that's why we can pray, as Paul said, to have a fresh and feeling, to be being filled with the Spirit of God. It's a prayer that we pray every day. The results are lost communion with God, offered prayers to God are not answered, and fellowship is hindered. God, in his sovereignty, allows some type of, of evil spirit to torment Saul. We're not told exactly how that is. But then David comes into the picture. Look how David's described. He is skillful in playing music, a man of valor, a man of war, prudent in speech, and a man of good presence, and the most important thing, the Lord is with him. It's what God saw earlier in verse 7 that's now manifesting itself in David's character. Proverbs 4.23 says this, Guard your heart above all else, for it determines the course of your life. So here's our takeaway point here this morning. When David was anointed by Samuel to be filled with the Spirit of God, David didn't take the throne right then. He didn't say, okay, guys, see you later. I'm done tending sheep. I'm going to go up to Jerusalem and become the, the king of Israel. It's been said it's been about 10 to 15 years later that when David actually ascended the throne of God. Why is that? Because God was preparing himself a king. In David's life, God was preparing himself a king. He wasn't the king yet. He had to go through some things. And the first thing we see is that he was in the king's presence, in the king's court there. And I think for us as believers, that should tell us that we need to be in the king's presence as well. That's why we, we put such an emphasis on reading the word of God, not just on Sundays, not just on midweek, but every single day on our own. It was David himself who penned Psalm 1. Blessed is the man or woman of God who, the blessed is the man who does not sit in the seat of the scornful. Blessed is the man who walks not in the seat of the scornful. I'll get this right. I was going to memorize this, which I do. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful. But his delight will be in the law of the Lord, in the law of the Lord, and they'll meditate day and night, and they'll be like a tree firmly planted by the rivers of water, bringing forth its fruit in due season, and whatever 
they do shall prosper. That's why it's so important that we make a, a, an effort to read God's word every day, to have that fellowship with him. God was preparing himself a king. He did it also by trials. David went through many trials up until he got to be the um, king of Israel. In fact, Saul himself trying to kill David. Uh, that's a real heavy trial that he went through. But all those, all those processes was preparing David to be the king. God himself was preparing a king. So the question I'd like to ask this morning is, is what is God preparing in your life? God is preparing himself a fill in the blank. God is preparing himself a husband. God is preparing himself a father. God is preparing himself a wife or a mother or a pastor or a professional or a servant. What is God preparing for you in your life? The title of the message today is From the, from the Pasture to the Palace. It was a nobody becoming a somebody. Maybe you feel like you're a nobody today. David was a nobody. He was obscure, feeding sheep, nothing significant. But God saw his heart. Can I share something with you here this morning? We're all nobodies. We're all nobodies. We all fall short of the glory of God. But God makes us into a somebody, namely a child of God. So we can go from the pasture to the palace of the king as well. Remember, this is all happening in Bethlehem. Samuel went through the cities to arrive at Bethlehem where David was. I don't have to tell you how significant Bethlehem is going to be next month in December when we celebrate Christmas God prepared another king to be anointed from Bethlehem. God has prepared himself a king, and his name is Jesus. He prepared himself a king by having him born in a lowly manger, living a perfect life, dying a perfect death, suffering for us, but rising again to life on the third day. God has prepared himself a king. But we miss the main point this morning if we think this sermon is about David overcoming and we can overcome as well. Certainly that plays a role and a part because this sermon is not primarily about us. Now we may see some of ourselves in David's life and that's good, but this story is meant to remind us of someone greater. King David prefigures King Jesus who would truly go from ordinary to extraordinary. David was anointed to be the next king of Israel. He spent the next 10 to 15 years in obscurity and suffering. Jesus was a carpenter, had a blue-collar job. He wasn't an up-and-coming political ruler. He wasn't schooled to be a rabbi. But at around 30 years old, he comes onto the scene of ministry and is anointed, and the Holy Spirit rushes upon him. Jesus' time on earth was relatively obscure, much suffering, but the Father would use this in his life of his suffering to save the world. So the takeaway point today is, is hang in there like David and you'll win the victory of the throne. The takeaway point is that the gospel reminds us that the victory has already been won. It's been said before that we don't fight for victory. We fight from victory. The cross is victory. We go from that point forward. 
I don't know what's going to happen on Tuesday. I don't know when we wake up on Wednesday who our next president is going to be. But can I tell you this? Again, I think it's really important. God is still in control. God is still the one who is sovereign. And God is still good. And as we come to the communion table this morning, communion is the two elements of the unleavened bread and the cup. And the unleavened bread represents the sinless, broken body of Jesus. By his stripes we are healed. The cup represents the shed blood, because without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. And as we partake of communion this morning, we can't help but think about all that Jesus has done for us. And maybe you're here this morning, you've been invited to come by a family member or friend. Maybe you've been coming here for some time. Maybe you just happened to see the signs out by the street and said, I'm going to check out what church is about today. And you've never received Christ alone for your salvation. I want to give you an opportunity to do that here this morning because we are not supposed to partake of the communion elements in an unworthy manner. And an unworthy manner is by taking it if we don't believe in Jesus as our Savior, if we've not trusted Christ alone for our salvation. We bring condemnation upon ourselves. So I would say to you who have not received Christ alone for your salvation, please do not partake of the elements here today. But can I tell you a better thing to do? Receive Christ alone for your salvation. Trust in him for the forgiveness of your sins. The fact is, we're all sinners in need of a Savior. And Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me.